Smart Air Peninsula. Coming up, we take a deep dive into El Nino and later we find out about a few new furry friends across the region. Hi, I'm Jackie Lim with iHeart Air Peninsula, your weekly local news wrap for the Air Peninsula and surrounds. But first, Wyala hosted some big names on Monday while finalising a $100 million grant agreement for the Port Benython Hydrogen Hub. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and SA Premier Peter Malinowskis visited the city to invest in the facility, with the Prime Minister saying... There is nowhere you'd rather be than Wyala. Together, both governments are investing $100 million to develop infrastructure at Port Benython and prepare it to become South Australia's first large-scale export terminal for hydrogen. Albo says the town will continue to grow and will make an enormous difference to the nation. This is a part of our commitment to develop a hydrogen industry and there's nowhere that is more advanced in that than right here in South Australia. And Premier Peter Malinowskis was right beside him. Prime Minister, I can't tell you how grateful South Australians are that we now have someone in the big chair who understands the economic opportunity associated with global decarbonisation. And that opportunity is more on show in Wyala than pretty much any other part of the Southern Hemisphere. With expanses of available land, abundant solar and wind resources, SA is primed to become a world-class, low-cost hydrogen supplier with a plan to develop a hydrogen industry in the Spencer Gulf. The redeveloped Port Benython is expected to host projects worth up to $13 billion and generate as much as 1.8 million tonnes of hydrogen by 2030. The federal government is investing over half a billion dollars for regional hydrogen hubs right across the country. Now that it's spring, lots of farmers are preparing for harvest, which is just around the corner. But with El Nino officially declared and underway in Australia, how are our farmers going? Sam Talbot has the answers. Glenn Wilkinson is a farmer in Snowtown, growing wheat, barley, lentils and peas, and he's pretty optimistic about his upcoming harvest. It's looking reasonably good. Yeah, touch wood. We, we've managed to dodge the frost, but yes, all in all, yeah, we're, we're lining up as a reasonably good one. He's not too concerned about El Nino. Instead, he's just focused on the harvest at hand and when it might start. It's looking a lot like 2019, 2020, and that was about the 22nd of October. And I'd, if I was putting money on, I'd say we'd probably be starting about the 20th to 22nd. We got quite a bit of summer rain at harvest time last year, which um, I think... Controlling some weeds is the number one key to um, having a reasonable one the next year. If you let your weeds go out of control, it uses all your moisture up. And, um, yeah, certainly if you if you spray and control those, you can save that moisture for next year's crop. And I think if it is going to be a drought, well, that's probably the, the key to keeping things consistent is um, keeping control of your summer weeds and utilising every dolly you've got properly. But with El Nino, much drier conditions are likely, and that's why it's at the top of mind for a lot of farmers. Things are looking positive. Um, I don't think the lower mid-north of, of um, SA would be critically bad at all, but certainly you don't need to go too much further north than here and it starts getting pretty tight, I'd imagine. Well, further north in Woodna, Naomi Schultz is the Executive Officer at Agricultural Innovation and Research, EP, and she's been keeping an eye on her area. I've been out and about a bit in the last couple of weeks and there are some pretty magnificent-looking crops and there are some... Uh, probably less than optimal. So the full range 
but generally everyone's done a really good job uh, with pretty limited rainfall. Of course, a few frosts or hot days could still undo all the good work, but there's hope for a strong finish. As for the looming El Nino, Naomi says it won't affect them immediately and there may even be an advantage to it. It's an increased probability or likelihood of drier and warmer weather, so that doesn't mean that is going to happen, but the odds are higher. And Air Peninsula isn't as affected as the eastern states by the El Nino pattern. So for us, it's less certain than it would be on the east coast. It's probably a little bit positive over summer in terms of people having to not summer spray their weeds uh, as much. But it will also mean there's less stored soil water going into next season, which is really important for us, especially on the Upper Air Peninsula. That stored soil water is, is really handy to know how much and what sort of crop types to put in for the following year. The EP and Spencer Gulf should only catch the edge of the new weather pattern, so conditions shouldn't become too challenging too soon. Still, though, things can go wrong, but when they do, help is available. Organisations like Rural Aid and SA Drought Hub are helping farmers. Dorothy Crosby is a councillor and community rep with Rural Aid who lives in Corn. At the moment, South Australia is going okay given the reduced rainfall. I think farmers are feeling a bit worried and concerned and just really always that balance of needing that rain and needing it to be just at the right time. She says while farmers here are feeling better than farmers in the eastern states, El Nino could really ramp up the amount of farmers needing help. Farming sort of has sustained stresses all the time. There's always a sort of level of sustained stress, but we certainly have been noticing Rural Aid a great increase in um, requests for water and hay in the other states. South Australia is actually at the moment the state that's providing the hay for some of those other states that are in desperate need, but they're getting ready for the shock for them as well in the coming months when when things get really dry. According to Dorothy, while our farmers are extremely resilient, they don't always have to be. They are a breed that are reticent, I guess, to reach out for help. They, They try to cope on their own. So when things do get tough, they're more likely to sort of withdraw within themselves and cope and it's it's often family members that might reach out and say look hey you're not doing so well you know you need some support so while the future of the weather and farming is still pretty unknown it's nice to know there are people out there who can help and in the meantime we wish our farmers all the best with their upcoming harvest do i say like have a great harvest wish you a good harvest (laughs) is that what you say absolutely yeah i hope the season finishes well for you i hope harvest goes smoothly is mm. usually a good one, yeah. Okay, hope your harvest goes smoothly to everyone on the EP. <laughs> Thank you. To any farmers in need of assistance, you can find SA Drought Hub online at sadroughthub.com.au and to everyone across the Air Peninsula and Spencer Gulf, we hope your harvest goes smoothly. I Heart Air Peninsula I Heart Air Peninsula Numbats are back on the EP and giving birth. John Reed from Ecological Horizons was part of a team that reintroduced 16 numbats near Kimber last year. Our reporter Ali Hall has more. There's new hope for numbats on the EP after their recent reintroduction. We brought some across to Secret Rocks uh, near Kimber about a year ago and uh, yeah they're doing really well and we've recorded them breeding. 
The Aussie marsupials were once found all over the EP, but now they're more rare than giant pandas, according to John. He says their reintroduction has been a nervous wait. Some animals struggle to adapt to a new environment and numbats only breed once a year. So sort of late May, we caught up a couple of females and we found they both had four little pouch young, little, little pinkies in their pouches and we we're really hopeful. Um, we tried a reintroduction up at uh, Olympic Dam after Arab Recovery about 20 years ago and when the females were carrying large pouch young, they were vulnerable to predation and they were eaten by falcons and so we we're really worried but here at Seeker Rocks, there's a little bit more um, cover and, and a few less falcons. So we were watching and watching and watching. And, and when they started staying in the same den day after day, we thought, OK, they've got some young. We put some cameras there. And it was super exciting. Yeah, just um, a couple of weeks ago now to see the, the first young emerging from their burrows. So what are the chances of these numbats surviving and continuing to grow their population? John's feeling hopeful. What we're hoping is that we've built a, a cat and fox exclosure. So it, it's not a zoo. It doesn't keep the numbats in. They can climb out. We've got nine square kilometres in an area and we've just expanded that to 3,100 hectares. But um, yeah, our hope is that in you know five or ten years' time, these numbats, if we can keep our feral cat and fox numbers down, they'll start spreading out sort of around in and they'll turn up in other Mallee areas on their peninsula, which will be really exciting. John says you do have a chance of spotting a numbat for yourself, and spring is the perfect time. Numbats are active during the day and like to eat termites, so make sure you look up and down trees. Thanks for that, Ali. And staying with reintroduced animals across the region, we've got an update on the betongs, which have been reintroduced on the YP. Our reporter Alex Newman got all the goss from the Northern and York Landscape Board's Derek Sandow, and it sounds like they're thriving. The betong, also known as the woily, once covered more than 60% of mainland Australia, but because of introduced threats like feral cats and foxes, the brush-tailed betong hadn't been seen in SA for over 100 years. However, thanks to a massive rehabilitation program, almost 200 have been tagged and introduced to the Dilbergaranda Inns National Park. From all the monitoring that we've done from our recent translocations and keeping an eye on things like their health and, um, you know, whether they're dispersing and, and breeding and those sorts of things, look, it's all really positive. So the population's growing, animals are healthy and, you know, they're dispersing across the landscape, which sort of shows that... Um, yeah, that they're um, you know they're able to find food and they're they're looking for new new habitat and those sorts of things. So yeah, really positive. He says the biggest thing threatening the batong at the moment is feral cats and foxes, but luckily he's not alone. We, we've got uh, excellent representation and involvement with the project from like the Department of Environment Water with the National Parks down there. Dilpagunda in this National Park is, is an area of great habitat. Lots of the landholders down there are on board with the project. You know, it, it makes sense for them to control foxes. It can help their agricultural productivity and lambing rates and those sorts of things. So that, that fox and cat control is the, is the key to success for us. Well, the outlook on the batong is good, but sometimes the outlook on the environment can seem pretty grim. But Derek is optimistic about the York Peninsula's future. It's really good buy-in um, from the YP community for projects like Manabunga, but also a lot of other projects happening across the place. I, I think people realise that, you know, things like conservation, tourism, agriculture, economic prosperity, they, they can actually all operate hand in hand. 
And so if we keep the, the country healthy and resilient, it can improve things like agricultural productivity, keep the cats and the foxes down, for example, and it can help lambing rates and stop the spread of diseases like toxoplasmosis and stuff like that. And generally speaking, it, it makes the place uh, you know, a nice place to live. So absolutely heading in the right direction. Alex Newman with that story. And finally today, we take a look back at the wonderful week that was the Pascaville Field Days. The biennial event has roots in the YP that date back to 1894, making it Australia's oldest field days. Around SA host Chris Gutt. Around SA host Chris Guskett has been in Pascaville for the full three-day event and he joined me on the final day yesterday. Awesome to speak to you, Chris. I trust you've had a great week. Absolutely. Well, the weather could not have come out any better and there were so many people coming through the door. I know from all the exhibitors that we talked to, they were discussing how the field days over the last couple of years had been down a little on numbers due to COVID and everybody working back into it, but it was fantastic to see so many people across uh, the three days of the York Peninsula Field Days, and it was a beautiful sight at Pascaville and uh, just wonderful for the momentum to finally be rebuilding for Field Days in general. About thirty to 40,000 people going through the gates, um, as I'm told. So, yeah, you've had a lot of faces to meet and greet this week. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It was uh, especially on the Wednesday. They anticipated that the Wednesday was going to be the busiest day, but there was a ton of people out. You could barely walk past the roads without having to dodge around people. And that was a fantastic sign. And even for a lot of the exhibitors as well, they were just constantly finding themselves busy talking to people. And that's exactly what you want out of field days. You want to talk to the community. You want to engage with them. You want to show the innovation with your particular product or whatnot. And there were so many different types of exhibitors there that were offering so much. 300 exhibitors are here and uh, some people that are there to really dive into the latest agriculture, machinery, equipment, technology. And as we're looking at El Nino, I'm sure that people have that front of mind when they're going about getting their new machinery and whatnot. Without a doubt. Um, It's something that I think is very front and centre, like you've mentioned. I think certainly the, the preparations by people coming into the field days was important when they came in and knew what they wanted. I was talking to a few exhibitors in particular in regards to machinery saying that people tend to know what they want once they get there. They've done their research online and they want to seal the deal or just check it out in person one more time before they do it. They got to the field days, knew what they wanted and uh, knew exactly where to go, which I think also goes to show you as well, great testament as well to the planning of it all and to have everything set out nice and early so people can go and do exactly what they want to do when they get there. Uh, One last question for you, Chris. I have to know, did you climb up into any of the harvesters or any of the trucks? (laughs) Actually, I did, uh, (laughs) and it was a little dizzying, I have to admit. I I wanted to experience it because a couple of the harvesters and a couple of just the, the machinery in general are, they are enormous. If, you're, if you've never experienced it, to stand next to one of them, it's really something to behold. Bigger than the unit I live in. Uh, so I was uh, very much enjoying the experience to be up there and, uh, and to see what it's like to be out on the, uh, on the farms every day. Yeah, hopefully you've recovered from your vertigo now. <laughs> but thank you so much. And um, it's been great hearing you live from Pascaville this week. And that's your weekly news wrap across the Air Peninsula and surrounds. Don't forget you can hear iHeart Air Peninsula on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jackie Lim. Join us again next week for more local, trusted and free news. iHeart Air Peninsula.